0: Amen. It's great to see all of you today and I really do echo what you just said. I feel like we've already heard from the Lord through worship, uh, through John and and Sam. Uh, Much of what I want to share today is a piggyback of every song we just sang, really. (laughs) Jesus is King, Jesus is Lord. And the only thing I didn't like about that testimony was there was no Scottish accent to it. (laughs) So I bring you greetings this morning from Scotland, land of kings and kingdoms today. Uh, Maybe Australian, I'm not sure. Okay, you know, turn to the person next to you, and in your best Scottish accent, say, Jesus is king today. Give it a shot. Come on, right now. Come on. With the warrior spirit. With the spirit of a warrior. Come on now. All right, all right, <laughs> Patrick. I see Patrick. He's rising up. His Scottish ancestry's coming out. Um. Heard a few Brits in the crowd, heard a few Aussies in the crowd, some Irishmen, that's great, Uh, but we really did have a fantastic time, and on behalf of the whole team from Scotland, we just want to say thank you for praying for us. Uh, He was not lying about those 20-hour trips. Hey, I've done international travel. That was not fun for me. I wanted to cry. It wasn't just the kids. It wasn't just the youth. Uh, I heard the message last week that Ron shared at the beginning. I know you prayed for us. It was an absolute miracle. I think we got here uh, when we did. So uh, thank you very much for that. We really mean that. And in two weeks, you're going to hear a lot more about our trip to Scotland. You're going to hear from a lot of people, uh, testimonies of what God did and his faithfulness. And so just encourage you the next couple weeks, come back. Uh, Things are building over the summer. We're expecting a great fall. It's going to be good. Well, a few months ago, it was determined that uh, this month we would spend time in the New Testament. And so Patrick, Sam, myself, and Ron, all we had to do had very simple instructions. Just choose a book of the New Testament, a different book to preach out of. That sounds really easy, right? 27 books in the New Testament. But Sam messed it up. (laughs) Because... I wanted to preach out of Ephesians, and he decided to preach out of Ephesians. And then I found out last week that Ron wanted to preach out of Ephesians as well. Uh, But Ron is an elder at Antioch, and so in gentle and submission, he deferred to Sam out of humility and chose Colossians. Praise God for Ron, elder, great man of God. I'm not an elder at the church. (laughs) And so I said, Sam, I challenge you to a duel. A fist fight. I got him in a headlock. I said, submit, Sam, submit. And he said, all right, I submit. I said, you get the last half, I get the first half. How's that sound? That's not actually what happened. I kind of of groveled a little bit, and I said... Can I please have Ephesians 2? Maybe I can take part of it. And he relinquished. And so I I appreciate that. I appreciate that. So we're going to talk about Ephesians today. Turn to chapter 1, verse 19 is where we'll pick up in a minute. If I were stranded on a deserted island and only one book of the New Testament could wash to shore, it would be a toss-up between the Gospel of John and the letter to the Ephesians. New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce called Ephesians the quintessence of Paul. C.H. Dodd said, it is the crown of Pauline literature, St. Jerome. It is the very heart and body of Scripture. One ancient writer said, it is the distilled essence of the Christian faith. But my favorite description was Spurgeon. Spurgeon said, It is the most authoritative and most consummate compendium of the Christian faith filled to the brim with thoughts and doctrines sublime and momentous. That's kind of British, I guess. But it's an amazing book. This is really an amazing book. I've spent uh, hundreds of hours the last few months, got challenged at Antioch Discipleship School. I'm committing this book to memory. So I'm like in chapter 5, and I am just like trying to like let this meditate over my spirit. And there's thousands of sermons that could be preached. But one in particular, God put on my heart while we were in Scotland. And it's from Ephesians 1, 19 through 23. So I'm going to have you stand with me if you would. I'll be reading out of the NIV. There are a lot of translations out there. Everybody has their own. I call this the the nearly inspired version, Um, but it is uh, one that I like to use, so we'll use the NIV. Let me read for us. You can follow along. Paul's talking about the power we have in Christ. He takes this first really long run-on sentence. It's like a 13-verse sentence. It just says, this is who you are in Christ. But then he says, and let me tell you who Christ is. That power is the same, by the way, as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet. And appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Wow. Wow. Lord, give us a fresh vision of who you are. Give us a fresh vision, God, of the fact that Jesus is king. That he is Lord of all. Lord, I pray we'd walk out of here today just so excited, so privileged, so thankful to be called The body of Christ, the church, Lord, we worship you, we glorify you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I heard this phrase uh, spoken time and time again last week. Jesus is king. Jesus is king. It was in every worship song. It was in like a lot of the admonitions. The locals talked about it. It was at the top of the banner of the, um, you know, the rallies we had. Jesus Christ is king. It was like everywhere. Jesus is king. Jesus is king. Jesus is king. And uh, one of the guys by, passed by the name of Stuart. I'm not going to keep talking in a Scottish accent, but um, <clears throat> I wish I could duplicate how he talked. He said, people come to Scotland to look at castles and relics of former kings. But we come to Scotland to seek revival and serve the king of kings. Jesus Christ is king of this land. And I thought, man, amen. Amen. Jesus Christ is king of this this land. And this phrase has enormous implications. Like when we hear Jesus is king, I think for us living in the West in the United States of America, right, we have this idea like, yeah, Jesus is king, praise God, go God. But like in the first century Ephesus, when you were a part of the way, which is what it was called, and you said Jesus is king, that was a politically subversive act. That was not just a throwaway phrase. That was just like, yeah, Jesus is king. Yeah, brother, Jesus is king. Yeah, praise God. No, that was like a a very rebellious act against the state. And I would argue that the farther our culture drifts away from Jesus, from God-ordained principles, the more we're going to start to feel this tension. That when you say Jesus is king, you actually put yourself against a cultural ideology moving in a different direction. So let me tell you about Ephesus. Uh, city of Ephesus, well developed, large population, intersection of a lot of trade routes. The harbor at a giant harbor dumped into Aegean Sea. It was probably one of five pinnacle cities in the Roman Empire. So you had Rome, you had Corinth, you had um, Alexandria, Antioch, and then Ephesus, and it was strategic. But Ephesus, not like many of the cities we think of in the the States, Ephesus was not a secular city. Ephesus was a pagan city. There's a big difference between that. It was not atheistic. It was not agnostic. In fact, in Ephesus, they worshipped a lot of gods, goddesses, uh, magicians, sorcery, all this sort of thing. So the temple of Ephesus, the temple to Artemis, you'll see it on the screen here, um, this temple sat high up on the coast, and essentially it was the first thing you would see when you sailed in, and it was sort of the last thing you'd see at night as a shadow cast over this city, temple of Artemis. It's four times the size of the Parthenon. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's like absolutely amazing to see and behold. But around this temple, there were all kinds of crazy things that would happen. Temple prostitutes uh, would convene there. Uh, Worship would happen there. It was also the treasury of Asia. And in the shadow of this temple, Paul came to Ephesus to say, I'm going to plant a church right here. Right here. So he did. And it was... Very challenging. He spent more time in Ephesus than any other city. He was three years there. It was hard. It was tough. You know You know what church planting is like. This church is not that old, and you just got to grind it out. And so he's getting ready to leave Ephesus, this pagan city. He's established this, like, young flock that's kind of a sapling. It hasn't really taken roots yet. He gathers the elders he's leaving behind, and he says in Acts 20, I know... After I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. I know that. Acts 20, 29. He says, even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth. They're going to try to draw away disciples after them. So you got to be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I've not stopped warning you day and night with tears. And now I commit you to God. This was a raging spiritual battle. This was a place of paganism. This was a place where after you plant a church and you leave, if you're Paul, you just say, Lord, please help this fruit remain. I got to be honest, a week out from Scotland, I've got a few names in mind. I'm like, Lord, please help the fruit of what happened remain in this kind of cold, secular city of Thurso. And Paul felt that times 10. This was a spiritual battle. In fact, we find in Acts 19, 18 through 20, you'll see it on the screen, that as Paul began to lift up the name of Jesus as king, things started to happen. The culture started to shift. The name of the Lord was held in high honor, and many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together. And burned them publicly, and when they calculated the value, the total came to 50,000 drachma. A drachma is about a day's wage. 50,000 days' wages at $200 a day is $12.5 million. This was a lot of money. This was an economic change that was happening in Ephesus. And let me tell you, when the Spirit of God begins to move and when the name of Jesus is exalted, don't expect there not to be pushed back. Don't expect the enemy not to just say, oh, well, you know, oh, well, guess I didn't see Paul coming, uh, but he came and that's too bad. No, no, no. No, no, no. Acts 19.27. After all of that, this silversmith starts to realize what's happening. And he says there's danger. Not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself who was worshipped throughout the province of Asia will be robbed of her divine majesty. This is a problem. This is not just about money. This is about our gods. It's about who we serve. They are coming against our gods. Our gods. And when the people heard this, they were furious and they began shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And soon the whole city was in an uproar. So listen, Paul is writing the book of Ephesians to a group of people trying to gain a foothold in a pagan culture. And he is worried about them. He's worried that they don't understand their identity in Jesus. He's worried that they don't understand who Jesus Christ is as king. He's worried they don't understand the implications of the church. And so this book is who you are in Christ, who Christ is, and the potential of the church of Jesus Christ. It's an amazing book. So he starts it off, right? Right. which he has freely given us, and the one he loves in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And it goes on and on and on and on. And then at verse 19, he turns a corner. Ephesians was written not to an individual, but to a group of people. So Timothy and Titus, when they received letters from Paul, They got into their little office or whatever, and they began to read this personal letter from an individual. But Ephesians was not written that way. It was written to a church. So someone received the letter, assembled the Ephesians, let's just pretend that's us, and stood up and began to read. And at this point in the letter, they made sure all the doors were locked and windows were closed and there's no spies among them. Because what's about to be said is scandalous and in direct opposition to the authorities of Rome and the people like this silversmith who are trying to get at them. Let me give you context. I know we don't get this today, but I just want you to understand that Jesus is Lord is very different than Caesar is Lord. Caesar was the head of the state and Roma was his body. Caesar was the head. Roma was the body. Caesar was the pontificus maximus, the high priest who would stand between the people and God. Providence. He constructed temples. He restored temples. Parades were given to Caesar. Sacrifices and libations were made to Caesar. Caesar was worshiped. Statues filled the streets. Icons filled the house. Now, I have an actual first century Um, proposal that was given by some magistrates to Caesar as they honored him. And I want to read this for you. And I want you to just see that Ephesians is a politically charged book. Look at what it says. Tell me you don't see some words of Paul in this. Decree to honor Emperor Augustus in the first century. We thank Providence who has filled our Emperor Augustus with the highest good and with all virtue for the benefit of humanity and has granted us and those who come after us, a savior who has made wars to cease and who shall put everything in peaceful order. And whereas Caesar, when he was made manifest, transcended the expectations of all, not only surpassing the benefits of his predecessors, but also all who would come after him with the result that the birthday of our God signals the birthday of our good news in the world because of him. Augustus is the savior. Augustus brings peace. Augustus brings good news to the world. And on this date, the birthday of Augustus, that was the date they began to swore in temple officials in Ephesus. And so when the emperor died because of their view of him, they believed that the emperor, the Caesars, basically their spirits went into the sky and they became a star in the heavenly realms. So the star that went up and they would look into the night sky, they would see the Caesars and the stars in the heavenly realms of sort of the gods that they worship. N.T. Wright tells us that the imperial cult was the fastest growing religion in the first century. And so Paul then says this in the midst of that, right? He says, um, the power we have been given is the same as the mighty strength that God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and over every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet. And appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills everything in every way. Church, you need to know who you are today. But you also need to know who you serve. Because there is no person and no power greater than Jesus. All right? And in the first century, that was scandalous. And more so, I would say, in the 21st. You cannot invoke a name higher than his. You cannot. He's the king of the universe. All things are under his feet. Caesar is not head. Roma is not the body. Christ is the head. The church is his body. Caesar is not Pontificus Maximus. Jesus Christ is our high priest. The temple of Artemis was constructed with stone. Guess what? The temple of the church is constructed with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. And he goes on. At the end of the letter, he talks about a new army clothed in armor to subvert military conquest with peace and spiritual warfare, not physical warfare. He goes on. He says, I'm an ambassador, not of Rome. I'm an ambassador representing a different kingdom and a different king. Amen. Say amen, somebody. Aye. As they would say in Scotland. Aye what does that mean for us? <laughs> like, that was great, John. That was, man, wow. I, I'm in the first century now, but I live in the 21st century, right? Yeah. Mm. What does that mean for us? We don't have temple cults. We don't have imperial cults. We don't have like, you know, Caesarus, Bidenus. I mean, I'm not sure. I'm trying to think like presidents, um, but... What does that mean for us? Well, what it means is that our job is to hold Jesus high and exalt him as king in a city that is profoundly pagan at its core. I don't really like to think about things as secular. Everything's pagan, really. We all have idols. We all have gods that we serve. You say, what are you talking about? Indianapolis is not profoundly pagan. You know, I did some comparison and I found that the Temple of Artemis, and I kid you not, is the exact same size as Lucas Oil Stadium. Did you know that? And it sits right in between an amazing corridor of interstates and everyone that drives by sees it. And can I tell you something? I've seen grown men worship with greater fervor at Lucas Oil than anywhere else in this city. Can I just tell you that? I've seen grown men. Oh, don't tell me that men can't worship. Oh, the men aren't passionate. The men needs. I've seen grown men with paint on their faces, just like rah, you know, yeah go go I mean calling for the death of like quarterbacks and running backs and like bring it down all right every idol has city or every city has idols every city has idols I can name the idols of many cities in the United States of America you want me to do it Washington DC power to which the church must say, Jesus Christ is all-powerful. Yes. Las Vegas, pleasure. Yes. To which the church must say, Jesus Christ is all-satisfying. Yes. Yes. New York City, success. Yes. To which Jesus, the church of Jesus Christ must say, Jesus is the greatest reward. Yes. Los Angeles, image To which the church must say, Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Boston, knowledge. To which the church of Jesus Christ must say, the knowledge of Jesus brings the greatest wisdom. San Francisco, equality. To which the church of Jesus Christ must say, through Christ there is no longer Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave or free. And I've wondered for some time, what is the chief idol of Indianapolis? Hmm. What is the chief idol of Indianapolis? Every city has idols. San Diego is health. Austin is independence. Every city has idols. What is the idol of Indianapolis? I've thought about this. I've talked to Andrew about this. I've talked to other people about this. We talk about this city sort of having a white noise quality to it. And I don't know if what I'm about to say is true. I really don't. I would say in your life groups, pass this question along. Think about this. What is the idol of the city of Indianapolis? But as I think about it a little bit, I wonder if maybe, just maybe, there is an idol in Indianapolis that I would call comfort. We just want to be comfortable. We're not pushing to climb the ladder of success like New York City. We aren't concerned with our image like L.A. We don't have hundreds of universities like Boston or some strong independent streak like Austin. We we just want to be comfortable. We're not a hedonistic city like Las Vegas. We're not a healthy city like San Diego. We just want to be comfortable. We're not too flashy. We're not really known for a whole lot. We just want to go to some games, have some free time, make a little money, some leisure so we can be comfortable. I think that might be part of it. It might be getting at it. I don't know. So what is then the message that the church has to offer the idols of our pagan city, Indianapolis? We need to wrestle with that. We need to think about that. That maybe the God of all comfort is the place to go to receive that. Maybe to say we're not going to idolize comfort, but we're going to go after the king. I don't know what it means, but I do know this. In Ephesians 2.6, Paul says to the church that as Jesus Christ is king, you also need to realize you have a role to play. And he has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And then in Ephesians 3.10, that his intent, though, was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realm. See, the church has a sort of a a thing to do, a, a game to play, a, a, a battle to, to fight, a race to run. We've got a, a part in this. So we've got to confront the idols of our city. We've got to preach a different king, a different kingdom. This is a political vision of Christ as king ruling from the heavenly realms, employing the church to make known to the rulers and authorities that a new kingdom is established. And that's why on the walls of the lobby you see a phrase, um, preach the gospel of the kingdom. See, the church should stand in the face of the idols of our city as we preach a different kingdom. Not the kingdom of the world, not with the gods of this world, a different kingdom. So this is our task. This is what we did in Scotland. This is what we do in Indianapolis, and we got to confront it. And what's interesting about this kingdom is it's not a kingdom of violence and domination and rule and reign. It's a kingdom of love and peace and reconciliation and justice. So how do we then take everything we've been given to establish that kind of kingdom? And at the very end of this, like, magnificent letter... The first three chapters, especially, is talk about the theology of all this. Paul says, So here's the deal, church. Um, I have a prayer for you. Because this is the king, this is the kingdom, these are the idols, and you are the fullness, right? Of Jesus, So you are to take the manifold wisdom of God and establish this kingdom. And here's my prayer for you. And Paul closes the first three chapters with this prayer. I think it's the most um, incredible benediction in scripture. It's just an amazing passage. Because when I read this stuff in Ephesians, if I could just be honest with you, that warrior spirit rises up parts of which have a competitive, um, frustrated, I'm going to take you down uh, mentality. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? It's sort of like, um, you know, the warrior spirit of Scotland is sort of like God saying, I want to take that warrior spirit. That's good. But I want to sort of do like a a Paul reversal road to Damascus thing, like zealous for the to be a Pharisee. I want to make you those zealous for Jesus. Like I want to take the warrior in you, but I want to direct it in love. So he closes with this interesting, um, prayer and benediction. And he says, so for this reason, all that I just said, I kneel before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives his name. And I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. But then he says, and I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to do what? To go take the city for Jesus. No, 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 not to do that. I want you to have power, power in your inner being with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. It's a different kind of king. It's a powerful king who rules above all, who's in the heavenly realms. But this is a different kind of king. This is a loving king. And I need you to have power to grasp how much he loves you and, and also to know this love. You need to know it. it. Surpasses knowledge. Because church, I want you to be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God and through that spirit of love, preach the gospel of the kingdom to Indianapolis, confront the pagan idols, and make his name great. Why must we grasp the love of God? Some of you may say, John, that sermon for 25 minutes was one thing, and then the last five, you just kind of went like this. Okay, what was that about? Well, because I've seen the church do a lot of damage in the world because it didn't possess the love of our king alright like this is not this is not military warfare in the traditional sense this is spiritual warfare with the armor of God We're not the ambassadors of some earthly kingdom. We're the ambassadors of a kingdom that God has given us to proclaim in the world. And that kingdom that's being established is one of love and peace, and justice, and reconciliation, demolishing idols, and strongholds, and bringing people to Jesus, and there's this army that's welling up, but it's not an army to try to take back ground on some earthly sphere, but to say, hey, we are here to see Jesus Christ lifted up as king, and his name renowned in all of Indianapolis, and that's who God's called us to be, so we're people of love, but we're also people that know who we are, and know the king that we serve, amen? And so this morning, for some of you, maybe something stirred in your spirit and you said to yourself, man, I don't feel like Jesus is that kind of king in my life. I have some other things in my life that I've allowed to be lifted up above him. And today I need to reenlist myself. I need to surrender myself. I need to kneel before this king. And I need to say to somebody, a prayer warrior in the front here, today I surrender myself fully to Jesus Christ as Lord of my life. I am done playing games with idols. That might be you. For some of you, you hear a message like this, and this is like, I gotta get in the game. I gotta get in the battle. I need to start confronting idols in my city. I need to start doing things. I need to start getting involved. I need to start activating the gifts I've been given because this is serious. This is idolatry here. Anything that takes away renown and honor of our Lord, it's our idolatry. I gotta get in the game. So for some of you, you may say, this isn't a commitment of surrender. This is a commitment to say, I wanna be an ambassador. I wanna enlist. Somebody, please pray for me and just ask God to help me find my place to serve, to go, to give, to do whatever. And if you need anything at all today, there are going to be people up front to pray for you for healing. You may be battling depression and anxiety and struggling with some things. Maybe today was a day for you to go, whew, thanks for that fresh vision. Because it's easy for me to just go, and everything's right here. I needed that and to surrender that today, okay? So let's pray together and then the worship team will lead us. Uh, our prayer team will come forward. God, we thank you. The fact that through the power you exerted, that you raised Christ from the dead and that you seated him at your right hand and that he sits far above. Everything else in this world. And I pray today, right now, across this congregation, Lord, that you would awaken in us a fresh vision of Jesus as King of this land, King of the universe, King above every name that would be invoked in the present age or the one to come. You're King. And, Lord, may that change us and transform us and make us into a people surrendered to you fully, destroying our idols and enlisting in the mission of this church to preach the gospel of the kingdom and make others great. So today, Lord, I pray you do your work these last few minutes. Work on people's hearts, Lord. Turn our hearts towards you. We love you. So much opportunity here in this body, Lord, but may we submit to you, lean into you and give us that love we need in Jesus name.